When I came up with this idea and I started writing it, I was like, what am I doing? Like, I'm a white man. Like, why am I making this movie? It, I mean, it scared the hell out of me. We're just inundated with constant news, media, messaging, social media, and everything has become so extremely polarized. It's like no one really wants to talk anymore. Hi there, all you boys and girls out there in podcast land. Welcome to Radio Film School, a radio documentary anthology series about filmmaking, cinema, and the pursuit of passion. Every week, we bring you personal, passionate, and sometimes provocative stories from filmmakers and artists all over the globe. Stories that will help you mature as an artist and find more fulfillment in your craft and career. Today's episode is one that I think is germane to the current times and topics in our news, and it's a great example of a filmmaker using his craft to generate positive discussion. But before we get started, I want to remind you about the new mini-series we started, Making a Documentary, where I document the making of my very first feature-length documentary. Episode 1 of that series aired a couple of weeks ago, and it centers around my wife, Tazra, who's the actual director of the film. Episode 2 is the latest episode, where I have a great talk with documentary filmmaker Brett Culp about successful crowdfunding strategies. Also, if you love to travel or do a lot of travel photography and filmmaking, or if you consider yourself a digital or global nomad, I want to invite you to check out a new vlogging series we started called Going Global. You see, in August of this year, my family and I are going to travel the world indefinitely, telling the stories of interesting people and places around the world. Leading up to our departure, we're going to be sharing our preparation process. What results are often funny interactions as well as some poignant insights about life, passion, and having new perspectives in life. You can check it out at the website at daredreamer.com slash going dash global. That's daredreamer.com slash going dash global. Be sure to subscribe to our new YouTube channel while you're there. That's it for now. As usual, we have a bonus segment after the credits where Spencer Gillis, today's guest, talks about developing your style as a filmmaker. So make sure to stay through to the end. Now, without further ado, on with the show. You guys doing? What? Hey, hey, hey! We're right there. This is a scene from the Vimeo staff pick film Sweep by filmmaker Spencer Gillis. The film premiered online last summer on the popular short film curation site Short of the Week. It tells the story of a white man, James, who comes into contact with a black Haitian immigrant and his son. They speak French, so I just assume they're Haitian. The film doesn't really say. After some intense dramatic pauses and long takes, James and the two immigrants form a bond and smoke a joint together. Later, James goes into a porta potty to use the bathroom. While in there, a light-skinned biracial police officer pulls up to the immigrants. You guys are smoking? No, sir. Just clearing the brush from the big storm. Oh, now what it smells like. What's going on? Put your hands up on the hood. Hey, you! Yeah, you! The same thing! You got any drugs on you? Are we under arrest? Don't move! 
James comes out of the toilet and the officer approaches him. The result is a controversial ending that leaves the audience in shock and disgust. Let me out here. Did, did you see these guys smoking pot? Uh, honestly, officer, I've been in the back working here. I, um, I didn't notice. All right, I suggest you head on home. This place is bugging me, man. It's wigging me already. Let's cut out of this hole. Hey, man, let's cut this jazz. The cat with the books is bugged out. Let's rock. We're living in strange times. There's lots of fear, uncertainty, and doubt going on in our country right now. Some of it may be deserved. Some of it may be because of hysteria caused by the media. The truth is most likely somewhere in between. Sweep is a film that feels very close to home right now. The director, Spencer, finished the film during a time when the issue of police brutality was big in the news and Trump was rising in the polls to become the Republican nominee for the President of the United States. So even last year, this topic was very apropos. But given the latest developments here in the States, the film seems even more prescient. Oh, by the way, Spencer is white. Is a white director the best person to tell what has been traditionally such an African-American story? Who has the right to tell certain stories? When it comes to art, is that even a question that's fair or just? My name is Ron Dawson, and this is Radio Film School, A Filmmaker's Journey. Spencer Gillis works as an A-camera operator on the Netflix hit show Orange is the New Black, but his real passion is writing and directing his own stories. I get a lot of filmmakers who reach out to me to be on the show, and he did the same. When my schedule permits, I take a look at their work to see if the film or their story fits with what we're doing. And Spencer's story and the making of this film in particular were tailor-made for a Radio Film School episode. I always know when I'm having a great connection with a guest when my interviews go along. My full interview with Spencer was just over 90 minutes. They're usually about 45 minutes to an hour. Today we're going to hear just part of my interview with him. Spencer shares his fears and personal challenges making this film, which is about how two black men were treated. I strongly urge you to check out the full film. It's only about 10 minutes. It'll be on the blog post for this episode of the podcast. I've been waiting for just the right time to play my interview with Spencer. I interviewed him last June and the time seems definitely right. We started off this part of the conversation with me asking Spencer about the decision to make the officer in the film biracial instead of white. Was the decision to make the officer, because the officer looks biracial, Mm -hmm. um, was that a conscious decision? It was. And why did you make that decision? Well, to be totally honest with you, that was something that with my casting director... We we came to that conclusion. She actually offered the idea because I had originally written it as a white police officer. Mm-hmm. Um, she she specifically suggested the officer look biracial or have him be some type of ethnic. She didn't even ask. She just brought him in, and then I watched the audition, and we were like, "Wow, he was great." And and you know i mean listen this whole idea i have to tell you when i came up with this idea and i started writing it i was like what am i doing like i'm a white 
man, like, why am I making this movie? It, I mean, it scared the hell out of me, honestly, because it's like, first of all, what, what right do I have to be making whatever claims I'm making, which I, you know, I don't think I'm making any claims that everyone doesn't already know already, but, but it just, it, you know, it made me, I was terrified. I'll be totally honest with you, but I, that's why I knew I needed to make it. Cause I was like, if I, I just got to be bold. I got to try something bold. Why, why just do the safe thing? Let's just do something that's going to be interesting one way or the other. Somebody's going to like not be ups- happy about it, but that's fine. Like that, that's how you start conversations and that's how things change. Right. So, um, when she brought up the idea, it just, it was like, it, it always should have been that way. When, when, when he came in and auditioned, Alexis Suarez is his name. And, um, she was like, that could be a really interesting choice for you. And at first it scared me because I just didn't, it took me some time to understand the implications. But the more I thought about it, the more it felt like it was the right decision. Because then you start to hint at the idea of institutional racism, which I think had it been a white cop, it would have been too, I think, overwhelmingly like, it's just a couple of jerks. You know, these guys are a couple of closed minded jerks. And it, it kind of almost lets you off the hook a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I liked about the choice that we made to have Alexis play that part is that it just, it just goes to show you that it's like, there's so much more to, to decisions that get made. Uh, on an institutional level in terms of training of police officers and, and, and how racial profiling, like how that whole thing can unfold. And that it's not just, you know, a white police officer is going to be the one that makes a bad decision that makes something like takes a situation that gets out of control. Like we've seen so many times. Right. So, um, I just felt like it really complicated the equation and in a way that was good and interesting and probably truer to life than if I would have just gone with the easy way, which would have been the sort of like, you know, the classic, you know, white, really scary, bald, probably, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and like the classic white cop. And, and, um, so I'm, I'm eternally grateful. Ann Davison, she, she's the one that just presented it with me. She didn't even ask. She just, she brought in like five or six options and Alexis was one of them. And it just, it just made a lot of sense. And, and Alexis and I talked about, it. I mean, he knew, that that was part of the role, and that was what we were trying to do. Were 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 the other options also people that looked biracial? No, no, they were all because I had written it as a white cop, right, and right. so I think she kind of followed my lead on that in terms of finding potential actors for the role. And but then she threw that in to see how I would respond. Yeah. Um, and Alexis had such a great audition that we. I was like, I don't need to see anybody else. Let's, he's the one. Let's just cast him, you know. Well, I mean, I don't know to what extent she was specifically thinking about the nuance of having a biracial-looking officer. But, like, had it been, like, a dark-skinned African-American officer, it would have come across more like, okay, this is – I don't know if you saw Straight Outta Compton, but there's that – there's a scene in that movie where, you know, they're beat down by a couple of cops and one of them is like a dark skinned African American cop. Mm. And so he comes across as, you know, the the sellout, you know, the or the you know, the that conflict between black officers and, you know, and kids in the hood and so the immediate reaction, oh, you know, that's the sellout black cop who's just as bad as the white cops, maybe even worse, because he's like you know, he's like you know what the tax collectors were in the in the Bible, like they were the ones who were Jews that right. you know, were hired by the Romans to collect taxes on their own kind. So, right. 
you know, had your officer been that, he could have come across as one of those. But because he's because he looks biracial, it's like, you know, he's ethnic, you know, you know, he's probably like half black, half white. And so there's this dynamic of. And I could be overthinking this, you know, because I just you know finished doing a documentary about biracial people. But I think even if even if you haven't, I think there is there is that you can look at him, see, okay, he's not white. Um, he seems black, but he's not totally black. And to what, and to what extent does, you know, his his own personal history play into how he treats, you know, the Jean character? Definitely, definitely. I mean, it's funny because I kind of, as much as Alexis and I had briefly mentioned the idea, we didn't really mine into it in a way that I was involved in in how he handled that. I kind of just. Let, left that to him because um, I felt like there was really nothing I could offer that was going to be true in any way to what he was going to bring. So I was just like, you know, find it for yourself in terms of that issue. Because for me, it's like, well, how am I going to add to that? You know, I don't have any idea what his personal experience would be in, in his life. So right. I, I, I mean, I brought up the idea that that was part of the role, but really we talked more about the character having been sort of like as a youth that he was picked on and he had a lot of issues with, you know, being like the small kid in class. Right. So, and that was part of the character as well is just this feeling of like he became a cop kind of because he wanted that sense of authority. And when his authority gets questioned, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't respond in a way that's very positive, obviously. Um, Well, to be honest with you, uh, and I don't know, I'm curious to know how other people responded. I personally did not have an issue with how he responded because you established the fact that you could smell marijuana on the guys, and right. so if a cop comes, if a cop comes upon you know two guys who smell like marijuana, um, uh, I think it's only natural for an officer to go into heightened mode. Um, for me personally, as I, wa- I was watching, and I'm sure there are going to be some people who are going to watch it who are going to see him as being just like a, a jerk cop. But like, if you have reasonable cause right off the bat to know that some people, like if he was acting like that and there was no marijuana, no smell of marijuana, and he's just like treating them like that because, right? Which I guess in the initial reaction, maybe you could say argue that's what he does because from from Jump Street, he's kind of jerky to them, right? Um, but you know, again, I kind of felt like, you know, if he's smelling marijuana on these guys, then he, he's kind of justified to be a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. tougher, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Has that has that ever come up in any of the discussions of the film? I'm curious. Honestly, a lot of people tend to forget that – people tend to forget that, I think, in the Q&A because hmm. they just sort of – I think what what sticks with them is the betrayal – Yes. Um, and and also the way that the cop sort of – he gives him a little bit of a look of – he hesitates. Like he, he does look like – Alexis looks a little – like he doesn't quite believe this guy when he says, oh, I was just back here working. Right. But, but he lets him go and he get, gives him the benefit of the doubt. And I just – I liked that that was such a subtle but yet – really you know it was a really i mean it was a cutting way to the truth to understand like sort of the differences in the way that he treats this white guy james with with a level of respect 
in that situation that I don't think he affords the the other two characters the same thing, right? So, I mean, yeah, maybe he did smell the pot, but I mean, who's to say James didn't also smell like pot? You know, well, yeah, so, he should have smelled. In fact, I mean, because where you when you establish that someone smells like pot, James is the one who smells like pot. So yeah, ex- exactly, and uh, he's got it in his shirt pocket. You know, in the beginning, yeah, and he, he pulls it out, right, and you know, he lets him go and keeps the other guys. Right. So uh, I mean, it's it's complicated, but no one's really ever brought that up most people i think feel that he overreacts the police officer that he overreacts and mm-hmm. he's just, he's way too he makes a situation when there really doesn't need to be one you know right. uh, I, I guess my devil's advocate to that would be it's easy to have that reaction when you've seen everything that just gone down right but you know uh if you are a cop and you come across this you haven't seen these guys playing in the in the lily fields like kids, right? Right. You just see, you know, two guys. One of them smells like pot, and I'm sure there's some racial profiling. I mean, um, and uh, you know, I was actually talking to a buddy of mine who's uh, African American. He's a filmmaker, and he was um, JD, who's been on the show for a while, and and we were talking about this topic in general, and. And he was saying, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff that goes down in the inner city with cops and whatnot. But even he, and he grew up in Long Beach where it's really tough and he's seen a lot of the kind of stuff that goes down. And But even he's not 100% against some kind of racial pro- profiling, not specifically any kind of profiling. Mm, that's um, interesting. Um, because you do sometimes have to make quick decisions. And, right. you know, I think there is... I think there's a reasonable level of profiling that can be done and there's a kind of profiling where, you know, if there's a black man walking down the street in a three-piece Armani suit and you start treating him like a thug, you could say, okay, that's not the kind of racial profiling we're talking about. But, you know, if you're in inner city and you see some guys and you're in L.A. and someone's wearing colors that you know from working that beat represents a particular gang, call it racial profiling or not, from your experience, you can – make a reasonable deduction that there may be, you know, gang members Something. or whatnot. So, right. right. Uh, well, I mean, listen, I think that's, that's, you bring up a really interesting point. And honestly, that was one of the, I mean, the impetus, once I got past this idea of doing a film about fatherhood and I realized I was writing a film about race, <laughs> right. um, that was the impetus was to to try to create something that, was compelling enough that that people would sort of walk away maybe a little pissed and a little sort of like that is that's wrong like what the hell what did i just watch but also that they they would be driven to want to talk about it with each other and in a way that it was um it was nuanced i mean that's what's that's what we tried to do something that wasn't just your simple because i mean listen we have plenty of that right we get so much we're just inundated with constant news media messaging social media and everything has become so extremely polarized it's like no one really wants to talk anymore it's everyone's just so and it's you know i mean it's understandable there's a lot of emotions there's a lot of horrible things happening but just from a distance just watching things in my news feed i'm just like man this is just nobody nobody wants to actually talk anymore they just want to sort of like echo whatever they believe is to be true, to be true about the world. And then, you know, like, how do we move forward and like 
heal or get things done or like change things. And I don't know, that's just kind of what I'm interested in doing overall, like as a filmmaker is to hopefully create conversations that drive us away from that divisive, you know, polarized nature of the world that we're living in at the moment. Mm -hmm. And because honestly, like, and I know this from a personal experience politically, just from sitting down with people that I grew up with and, and the kind of politics that, you know, you know, if I see on Facebook stuff that they post, I'm just like, wow, this guy's gone off the deep end. But then when we sit down and we actually talk the nuts and bolts, like we're actually not as far apart as we think we are. I mean, some things maybe, but a lot of things not so much. So I guess it's just kind of like a matter of finding a way to connect with other people. I mean, that's kind of why I want to make movies is to be able to like let people connect. And in a time when conversation is kind of at its minimum, I think, compared to what it was maybe 15 years ago, um, like real substantive conversation. So that's kind of what the whole point of it for me is, hopefully – you know, which is why I'm not really making films that are just, you know, purely meant to be consumed as entertainment. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, hopefully they're entertaining enough, but it's more about challenging you and, you know, making you kind of like come away thinking about your own person and your own instincts and maybe what you might have done in that situation. My dignity, yeah. mentioned earlier that you were terrified making this film because you felt like you know being white is like you felt like it wasn't a story for you to tell or like what where, where, what was where was the fear coming from I guess I mean I knew right away that it was just going to be a really hot button issue so that scared me um, I guess I just didn't know that I felt that I had the kind of like authority to, to tell the story. And, and, and that's why I told it in the way that I did, honestly, that I told it kind of from this, this guy, this white perspective, because we honestly don't see a lot of films that do it in that way and do it in a really truthful way mm-hmm. where it's like, they don't end up being the good guy that sort of teams up, you know, it's like he does the wrong thing and, and it's a shame, but that was the only way I knew I could make the film and have any chance at having like a, a way to talk about it and, and, and like have it come from a place of like personal, genuine kind of life experience, you know, cause I had a couple people like when we applied to Sundance and we didn't get in and uh, another friend of mine who's gone to Sundance a couple times talked to me about it. And he was like, you know, he was kind of like boosting me up cause we hadn't premiered yet at any festival. And I was pretty bummed out about it cause I was so proud of the film and, he was like, it's a good film. It's really interesting. Like, don't worry. But he was like, but these are some of the things that maybe they were thinking about. Like, why did you tell it from the white perspective? And, and that was my answer was just like, I couldn't have told it any other way and felt comfortable that I was being true to my knowledge of the world, you know. Um, but it was scary because, I mean, it, it just it still came off as like, do we need another white perspective on this? You know, ultimately, that was kind of what I was n- nervous about. But mm-hmm. Um, but I took the chance and I'm glad that I did because I do think whether I see it or not, I do think that there's, there's people that have been affected by it and, and have at least had a conversation about it. You know, it's funny, we premiered the film in Cleveland, Cleveland International Film Festival. And, uh, 
I think that they thought I was a black filmmaker because they programmed us in like a, a block of films that was by all, all the directors were, were African-American oh, and, yeah. I, and I was the only non-African-American filmmaker, but I don't think they knew that. I mean, they just programmed the film and it had to do, I think it was called uh, African diaspora mm-hmm. or something like that. And so I was super nervous about it and, and it was a predominantly African-American crowd. And, but I was like, this is why we made the film. This is perfect. There's no better way to show this for the first time. Oh, man. It was, it was brutal. It was brutal because nobody said a word. Nobody asked one question. Really? And I kind of can't blame them. I think it was just like it was too much. I think everybody was like, whoa. Like I don't even – I think people just didn't even know how to start talking about it. Or something, but it was. It, I was disappointed actually because I kind of felt like the whole reason I made the film was to to have those tough conversations. And it did, you know, a couple of people came up to me afterwards actually, but in, in a group setting, it's just like nobody wanted to say the wrong thing. I think, and it was it was just silence. There was one other filmmaker, and all, he got all the questions, <laughs> and nobody asked me anything. Well, really, but, like on the panel, there was only one other filmmaker. Yeah, it was just because it was a group of shorts and there was only one other filmmaker that had attended. Oh, but, got it, got it. But the director of the festival, Paul Sloop, he was moderating. So he asked me sort of like, well, tell us about your inspiration. But that was my one question. And, and otherwise, it was just sort of like nobody really was comfortable. So, it yeah. It's awkward. It's awkward. I know. <laughs> yeah. It's awkward. It was hard even for me and the actors in the beginning when we had a rehearsal. I mean, it was tough It it at first. But... It was such a great experience for me because we got a chance to really like sit down and talk about how we related. Each of us went in a circle before we did anything. We just sat down and we all said from our personal life experience how we related to the script. And it was such a great process for me to hear and listen to, to their stories and what drew them to this material. And honestly, it was really humbling and and as a director, like, I'm really into listening to people and trusting the actors a lot. I mean, that's a huge part of the way that I work. We talk a lot before we shoot. And then when we shoot, it's, there's not a whole lot that needs to be said. We're kind of on the same page. And, and I don't know. It just, it just kind of meshes. It just works if you allow it to. So it was a good process. It was good for me and good for them, I think. Everybody, I think, got something out of it. Oh, my dignity. There has been a lot of stress and debate on social media lately. People are unfriending and unfollowing other people at what has to be record rates. It seems like every other post on Facebook is a debate about politics, Muslim bans, women's rights, race, protests, and religion. All the kinds of things they tell you not to talk about when in mixed company. And the thing is, it doesn't really feel like we're talking with one another. It feels like we're talking at each other. And I have to confess, I know I've contributed to the talking at part. But sometimes it's really hard to listen to an opposing side with a genuinely open heart. Do you ever feel like that? I really appreciate what Spencer has done with this film and his desire to use his art to inspire meaningful conversation. My hope is that we can see more of that in this world. Films, music, art, and photography that encourage dialogue and discourse. 
ideally in a way that is empathetic, compassionate, and respectful. Let's all try to talk with one another, shall we? And while we're having that interchange, let's open our ears and our hearts to be better listeners. I know I'm going to try. Be sure to stay after the credits for a bonus segment where Spencer talks about what it takes for a filmmaker to develop his or her style. Now let me tell you a little story about this girl I know. Lived on the second floor of my duplex home and we never met before. Even though you know more, the type is always blowing this drove. Radio Film School is a production of Dear Dreamer Media and is a proud member of the Podcastica Network, a small collection of pop culture podcasts that cover topics from your favorite television shows to meditation and health to podcast production. This and other great shows can be found at podcastica.com. Music for this episode was curated from Free Music Archive and Kevin McLeod's Incompetech.com. Links to tracks are in the show notes. The song, This Is What I Smoke To, was written by Rwanga Samath and performed by Mo Green, and courtesy of First Frame Music and 235 Films. All rights reserved. If you like what we're doing on the show, please subscribe on iTunes. Your subscription helps the show get found. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review. What do you think about this topic of people telling the stories of other races? Another great way you can support the show is by becoming a Daredreamer Premium Member. Premium membership helps keep the show going and putting out great weekly content. For a monthly price about the same as a large gourmet blended coffee, you not only support the show, but you get access to ebooks, templates, bonus episodes, discounts, and other products and services, and other resources to help you grow in your craft and career. Go to daredreamer.com slash join to learn more. You can follow me on Twitter at daredreamerron, where I curate links and stories about filmmaking, photography, social media, marketing, and branding. If you just want to stay notified with what's up on the show, follow us at Radio Film School. That's it for this week. Remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. Come on. Yeah, and when we ride. Yeah, and when we ride. Yeah, cause when we ride, we twist up another one and this is what we smoke to. Now, as promised, here's my short conversation with Spencer about developing a signature style. Let me ask you one more uh, quick question before I go. Mm-hmm. Um, what would be your advice to filmmakers to find their voice or their style as a filmmaker? Oh, man. I guess it's probably not a quick question. but it's, No, no, it's okay. I'm just trying to think, think about it. Um, Do you think you have one? Oh, for sure. I mean, I'm still finding it. I mean, it's a very immature i think at this point for me i'm still learning a lot about like i said i mean my first film i made that film and i mean i used my gut and i went with what made sense to me but i also didn't really realize until we went to sundance and suddenly i had to like go and do interviews and talk about what my movie was about that's when i realized like wow i didn't really know what i was making this film about until i thought about it afterwards you know um so you kind of find with each movie, I think you sort of start to hone in on what your voice is. So I think it's a lot of it's just practice. Um, 
And also trying to start, I mean, that's the classic statement is the sort of write what you know. But I think the reason for that is because in the beginning, it's whatever you write about, if you know a lot about it, or if you have a personal slant on it that feels like it's really personal and different than what someone else's experience is going to be, then it's going to be compelling and it's probably going to come off as really authentic and people are going to respond to that. You know, I think authenticity is where a lot of independent films are really strong and that's where a lot of people like champion those movies because they just, it's inevitable that people are just going to like relate to that and be like, wow, like there was so much, you just felt the heart in that movie, you know? Um, that would be my advice is just to sort of write what you know and, and what you're really interested in and, um, and, and just make as much work as you can, you know? And then in terms of style, I mean, I feel like I'm not terribly traditional. Actually, that's not true. I feel like I'm actually more traditional. Like I actually feel like I'm against, not against, but I think that there's a lot of stylistic tropes right now that are like, it's just been so overused that I, I just can't believe people still fall for it. It's just sort of like, oh yeah, let's just do the whole movie like this. And it's going to, you know, people are going to love it. Right. Um, Instead of like having a real intention, like I just feel like when you think about style, like I feel like the style should always grow from the story. So whatever that means for your movie, you know, if you just want to shoot it handheld on an iPhone just because you want to have a great marketing ploy, like I think that's a terrible decision personally. (laughs) But Mm. listen, people do it and they, you know, and they get a lot of press for things like that, like the gimmick, you know, anytime you do something that's just sort of a gimmick, but I'm, but maybe it makes sense. If it makes sense for what you're trying to do and the story you're telling, then that's great. Like it, it totally. But it has to be integral to me. It's the the two are one and the same. It has to do something that tells the story better than any other way. And that's what I think I always use as a guiding principle. And so does my DP Ludovic. We always sit there and say, "Does it really make sense to do Steadicam here? Like, is that?" Does that tell the story better? Is that sort of like where we want to be right now visually? And we just, you know, you just work through that. Like what's the character's state of mind or what is the scene about? Whose scene is it? That determines a ton in terms of what your coverage is about. Like all those questions. I think you just have to ask yourself, like, is it telling the story in the best way? Um, and if the answer is no, you know, then you have to drop that shot as much as you want to do that cool shot and do your homage to whatever director, <laughs> you, you know, it's like, it's wasted time. Cause then, you know, in the end, it's not going to cut right. Cause it's going to be an off the wall shot from under the table that doesn't match anything else or whatever it is you do. And then you're like, well, it, we, we either bring it, put it in the film and it doesn't match or we cut it. And then you spend all that time doing that one shot that you just knew you were going to cut anyway. Yeah. You could have been spending time on another, you know, take or let the actor do another take or whatever it is. But yeah, I just think your style just has to grow from your from your narrative and your characters and what makes sense for that, you know, that tone and that state of mind. Um, that's the best advice I can give is just because a lot of people don't do that. It's just sort of, you know, it's a little gimmicky. It's a little like as long as we keep the shot moving, like people won't get bored. The problem with that is you ignore that maybe the problem with the movie isn't, you know, that it needs to have amazing visuals. It's that, like, the characters in the script is not good enough. So you just are worried that 
you just got to make it move and make it look awesome and explode. Uh, that way people don't get bored because you don't trust that the writing's good enough. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what the problem, honestly, personally speaking, I feel like that's what a lot of the Hollywood films that disappoint me, that's kind of what they fall back on. It's just sort of like we can make it really exciting and visually just incredible technically, but like that doesn't really do anything for you if, if you're not connecting with it as a human being, you know? Um, at least for me, yeah, but no, absolutely. I look at it, I think maybe a little differently because a lot of the stuff I want to do, like, I don't feel like it's extremely uncommercial, but it's definitely not commercial in the scheme of Hollywood. And that makes it hard to get movies made, you know, yeah, for to sure. get funding. Yeah. So you're listening to Dare Dreamer FM, the sound of creative expression. Hmm? Ah, Oh. Podcast to go.